Being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the... And John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own hand, or his own power, but you, you ready? But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, they beheld as he was taken up in the clouds, received them out of their sight. By the way, in the clouds, the clouds in the Bible is always a type of the glory of God. Was there a cloud by day and a fire by night in the Old Testament? All right, the Shekinah glory, that was a picture. So clouds in the Bible are always a type of God's glory. It's just, it works here too, okay? He was received up into the clouds, and the Bible says, And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel. These are angels, folks, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Be seated. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word and you'd like to turn to the front of your Bible with me, keep your finger here because I'm going to come back to this. You have an ingenious invention in the front of your Bible. It's called a table of contents. All right? And some of you are so proud you won't use it because you'd rather hunt forever trying to find it. And the bottom line is you've got that table of contents. Now, in the New Testament, you have three major divisions. You have what's called the Gospels. You may want to write this in your table of contents. You can actually write on your table of contents. You can do that. You're allowed, especially if it's your Bible. Now, if it's somebody else's Bible, don't write in it, all right? The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called Gospels, good news. Each one's a different writer. Each one writes to a different group. And each one of them wrote about Jesus Christ from the time he was born all the way up until the time that he died. Okay? They all tell the same story. One guy looks at it this way. One guy looks at it this way. One guy looks at it this way. Another guy looks at it this way. And they tell what they saw. Sometimes they agree and sometimes they tell parts that the other ones don't tell. For example, the Gospel of John's about mm, 85% unique. That means he tells stories that nobody else includes. And yet John just told stories that were for signs. He said, I want you to believe that Jesus is God. I want you to believe that he's the Son of God. And I'm going to show you signs that are eight signs that are true about Jesus Christ that prove that he is who he says he is. So you got the Gospels. And then once you get past the Gospels, you got the book of Acts. Acts is a history book. You got that? It's a history book. It's the start of the church. 30 years. Isn't that amazing? 30 years history. That's all it is. And it says, all right, Jesus goes back after he's been raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And here's what the church does after, they, after he leaves for 30 years. And then starts epistles. You ready? Paul writes to Romans. He, he writes to the Romans. He writes to the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians. He writes to those at Thessalonica. 
He writes to Timothy, a guy. Some of the epistles are written to people and some are written to places. And so Paul writes most of these. And as you look down through here, the Bible says he writes to a guy named Titus, a Gentile Christian. Philemon was a slave owner. Hebrews, that's obviously Jews. He writes to the Jews. I think Paul wrote it. And then James, the brother of Jesus, writes his epistle. And then First and Second Peter, and then First and Second John, Third John, and then Jude. By the way, Jude's the half brother of Christ. And then the Book of Revelation is written by none other than John. So let me help you something. The great book of the Apostle Paul here is uh, the Book of Acts. is a story about Peter. I think it's chapters one to eight, and then Paul, chapters nine to twenty-seven, twenty-eight. All right, you with me? So it's a real easy deal, and I'm trying to help you get a little background so that when I start into the book of Acts today, you're not sitting over there scratching, wondering what I'm doing, all right? So let's look at Acts chapter 1. Let's do our deal here, all right? You ready? Acts chapter 1, and we're going to start in here. I'm going to talk today about this subject, five convictions that changed the world. Five convictions that changed the world. You know, I was reading about a guy. Now, this is a joke, all right? This is not a true story. But I read about a guy who was from the Marine Corps. My dad was a Marine, World War II, and I was raised in the Marine Corps. I'm going to be real honest with you. I was the only kid in my block that knew how to march. I'm serious. He taught us how to march. There were three Martin boys, and we had to keep it in line. We marched all the way to school, and he'd be back there like the drill sergeant, telling us, right, left, right, left. And he'd have those cadences that he'd go through. I was the only kid in the whole neighborhood that had that. But anyways, that's what we did. And because he was in the Marines, I mean, he was Semper Fi. I mean, he was definitely in the Marine Corps. I heard about a guy from this neck of the woods, Tennessee. And he was in the Marine Corps. And his Baptist preacher got up and preached a sermon. And in his sermon, he talked about all these people that were going around door to door. They had black satchels and they want to give you magazines and the preacher said you be careful with those people those people don't believe in the same Jesus we believe in he said those people are people that don't believe in Christmas those are people that honestly don't salute the flag and he went down through all of these different things and this marine boy I mean it got all over him he couldn't believe that anybody wouldn't salute the flag so he decided, he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to wait for that person to come to my door and I'm going to get him. So he went out and he bought the biggest American flag he could find. It covered his whole living room wall. I mean, this was a big flag. And he put it up there and he was just waiting. And finally, uh, he got his family together and they learned the national anthem. And they learned every verse. And they could sing it, man. He'd just say, all right, let's do it. And they'd start singing the national anthem. They knew it word for word. Then they worked on the Pledge of Allegiance until even his three-year-old could say it. And he's waiting for this person to come. And finally, he sees this little old lady walking across the yard. She's got one of them big black satchels. And she knocks on the door. And he opens the door. And he looks out and he sees this lady. And he said, lady, before you say another word, I want you to come in this house. And he called his family in. The first thing they do is they salute that big, huge flag. And the second thing they did, they sang the national anthem. And they didn't sing just the first verse. They sang every verse of the national anthem. And he looked at that lady and he said, man, what do you think about that, ma'am? And she said, 
Well, I'm impressed that you're that patriotic, but my name is, and she gave her name. She says, I sell Avon. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how things like that happen? Isn't it amazing how many times that, you know, we get so excited about some things that are peripheral that really don't really matter and yet we make such a huge deal out of it you know as a church I think sometimes we do the very same thing I think sometimes as a church we make an issue out of what color the carpet is or whether or not the flowers have been changed in several months or you know what color the nursery's been painted and we get all worked up over things that honestly doesn't really matter. Today I want to show you some things that matter. I want to show you some convictions that turned a bunch of wimps into world changers. And we're talking about the 12 apostles. And so this morning I want to talk about five convictions that changed the world. Let's look and let's read the verse. Now I'm going to explain and teach as we go. All right, you ready? Let's read the first verse. The Bible says, the former treatise, by the way, you can underline that in your Bible, write the book of Luke. Write Luke out to the side of that. Luke was written by a doctor whose name was, come on, that's not a trick question. Luke's name was, there you go. And he was a doctor. He's a Gentile. He's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. How do you like that? And he writes two books. He writes the Gospel of Luke, and he writes the book of Acts. Now, according to Colossians chapter 4, about verse 14, Luke was a doctor, and he was Paul's personal physician. Uh, you remember on the first missionary journey, Paul contracts some kind of eye disease, and from then on, he doesn't see very well. When he writes the book of Galatians, you get down to the end of Galatians, he says, you notice, by the way, how big the letters are in this book, because I wrote this one with my own hand. Most of the time, Paul had, here's a big word, an amensuensis. That means a guy that traveled around, and Paul would dictate his letters, and the guy would write it down. And if you read the book of Romans, Paul calls out one of the dudes, and he says, and thank you for such and such, because he's the guy that basically wrote the letter. So every once in a while, Paul would write it with his own hand, but most of the time, his eyesight was so bad, he had to write with such big letters, it was like ABCs in, in kindergarten. How many remember that? All right. So he said, I, I don't do that. I'll get somebody to write my stuff. Now, Luke travels with Paul. He becomes Paul's personal physician. And he was there most of the time through thick and thin. When you read the book of Acts, one of your best things to look for is the we sections. It says we went here and did this. That means Luke was with him. So all the we sections in the book of Acts, that was exactly... Sometimes Paul would tell Luke where they went and what they did, and sometimes Luke wouldn't be there, and Luke would write it down. But when it says, we did this, that means Luke was actually there. Now, he writes to a guy named Theopolis. Now, put your finger here and hold this passage. Look back to Luke chapter number 1. Look to Luke chapter 1. You say, Pastor, you, you're pedantic in your Bible teaching. Well, let me help you something. I think far too many of us don't know much. And my job is to help you to know much, okay? So that's why I do what I do, all right? Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, For as much as we have 
taken in hand to set forth an order of declaration of these things which must surely be believed among you. Even they delivered unto us from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world. It seemed good to me, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, notice this, most excellent Theopolis. Now that's Luke 1.3. Go back to Acts 1.1. You ready? Acts 1.1 says, the former treaty have I made, O Theopolis. What did he leave out? Most excellent. Did you catch that? Now, let me give you the history. Most people think that Theopolis was a man of influence. And maybe even a retired military, maybe a general, maybe somebody that was very influential and and had some military honors, okay? In the Roman Empire, you had three kinds of people. You had pweebs. Pweebs were common people. Look around. You're looking at a pweeb. That's what we would be, all right? And then you had knights. Knights were people that were considered influential, people that owned businesses, people that were wealthy, people that had a lot of money, all right? And then you had people that were in the Senate, people that were officials, Roman officials. And normally if you called somebody most excellent, it was because that was their title. They were a member of the Roman government and they were an uppity up. And so you had to refer to that. If I was going to write the governor, I wouldn't say, hey, Bill. Come on. Would you, did you, I've never met him. I would say, uh, dear governor, you know what, Haslam, because that's what you do. You show respect. And so He's showing respect in Luke chapter 1. Now, in Luke, Acts chapter 1, he, he drops it off. You say, Pastor, what do you think happened? He writes this guy named Theopolis, a Roman official, and he tells him about Jesus Christ. And he tells him, hey, let me tell you about the greatest person that's ever lived. And he reads that gospel, and guess what? He got saved. And by the time he gets Acts chapter 1, because he's saved, being a Christian in the Roman government was not your best thing to do. You paid a price, and he lost his title. Now he's a Christian. He's not Caesar is Lord. Now it's Jesus is Lord. And so now he's just a regular old guy. He is Theopolis. By the way, the word Theopolis in your Bible means lover of God. How do you like that? He was a lover of God. Tradition says, tradition says, I don't know how much you can trust that, but tradition says that Theopolis was a very wealthy Roman, a very influential Roman, and that he had this Gentile doctor whose name was Luke as his slave. And Luke is released and he goes off on these journeys with Paul and begins to write down all this stuff about Jesus and Theopolis reads from his trusted ex-slave named Luke, and he becomes a born-again Christian. Man, is that exciting or what? That's almost beyond the pale, isn't it? And so he writes him in Acts chapter 1. He says, oh, lover of God, Theopolis, not most excellent. He said, just a regular old dude. He says, I want to write to you about Jesus who began both to do and to teach. To do and to teach. Now, Let's think about that for a moment. Here's my first point for those of you that care. My first point is basically this. What changed the world? The early church became committed to a mission to finish what Jesus Christ began. 
That's what it says. Jesus began to do and to teach. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Let me show you that in the Bible. Let me show you that. Look back to Mark chapter 1. Now, I, I, I got I to gotta be careful here because I get too wrapped up and I, I won't get my sermon preached. But look at Mark chapter 1. Let me show you something interesting in Mark chapter 1. Take your Bible there. The Bible says, if you look at uh, verse number 16, you got it ready? Verse 16, Jesus walks by the sea, you notice that? And he's by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in there, and they were fishermen. And he said, come after me, and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. What is Jesus doing? He's calling his 12. Jesus began to do. Now, go a couple of verses down. Look at verse number 21. He goes to Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath, they entered into the synagogue. And what did he do, class? And he taught. He began to do and to teach. By the way, the whole gospel of Mark is that way. I just did the first chapter. He does some things and he teaches. He does some things and he teaches. He does some things and he teaches. Now, the Bible says that these disciples that are called as apostles now, they see that Jesus has this mission and that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the bottom line is they say, hey, we want to be a part of that. Paul, when he writes and he talks about calling people as disciples, he says, the things that you've seen in me, do, do, and then teach others also. Yes. Hey, you begin to do and to teach. You know, I've met some people, honestly, they didn't do much, but they were willing to teach you how they didn't do it. <laughs> Stay with me. That's always the proper order. Where do you gain your authority to say what you say? You got to have it in your own life. You got to see it works for you. You begin to do it. And once you start doing it, then you can share it with somebody else. And so these apostles say, hey, we saw what Jesus did. Man, let me tell you what he taught. Let me tell you how he changed the world. Hey, bottom line is, and Jesus was committed to that. He had a, he had a commitment, a conviction to that. They said, we want to do what Jesus began. Let me help you something. Go all the way to the end of the book. Look, look at Acts chapter 28. Go all the way to the end of Acts. All right, you say, Pastor, where are you going with that? All right, well, let me show it to you. Look at Acts chapter 28. Let me show you something cool. Paul in Acts 28 is in jail. He's in Rome. Are you with me? And he's sitting around waiting for his head to get cut off. Now, is that a blessing or what? And look what the Bible said. Verse 30, you got it? I'm in Acts 28, 30. You got your Bibles turned there? Come on. Say yes. All right. It says, and Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. By the way, jails were different back then. You got thrown in jail. He, Paul gets rented quarters. He paid for it himself. Isn't that amazing? You say, Pastor, where did he get that money from? He got that money undoubtedly from churches and from people that were supporting him. And the scripture says he has his own hired house and he received all that came into him. Paul couldn't go to them because he's chained to a Roman soldiers, but they can visit Paul. This is a whole new kind of evangelism. It's not I go after them. They get an appointment to come see me. And the next verse says, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man what? Forbidding him. Some of your new translations will say, no one hindering him. Hey, did you know that Acts is the only unfinished book in the Bible? 
It kind of stops. Is that the end of Paul? No. I believe that Paul got released. I believe that Paul goes on a fourth missionary journey and goes up to Spain and Great Britain, and then he comes back, and then he goes into the jail. Now he goes into the Mamertine prison. Now he actually gets his head cut off. But it's unhindered, folks. You can't keep somebody with a commitment down. You can't keep somebody with a, a conviction down. You say, Pastor, what is a conviction? A conviction is something you believe in your heart. A conviction is something that changes a wimp into a world beater. You know, I think the greatest thing about these disciples is they weren't passively interested in Christianity. They had a conviction that what Jesus began, that's what we're supposed to do. And all God's church said, Man, you're going to preach me to death if you don't amen once in a while. Dad, I'm going to pull my ear out so long like mud flaps on a tractor. <laughs> hey, do you think that Jesus began and that we're supposed to finish? Yes or no? Yeah. So let's notice the second thing this morning. Let's notice our second uh, conviction this morning. Uh, the second thing is this. The, the book of Acts, when you look at the book of Acts, it seems like the second conviction is in, in Acts chapter 1. Take your Bible. Let's look there. It says that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And in that day he was taken up, that he was through the Holy Ghost. He was given commandments in the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, let me help you with this. Look at verse 3. He says, to whom also he showed himself alive. You say, Pastor, what was it that changed the, uh, the apostles? Let me tell you something. They had a conviction that Jesus Christ was alive. Amen. You know, I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't think the average Baptist really believes that. Oh, we go to church. We celebrate Easter. And we say we sing, a, well, we, I serve a risen Savior. And I promise you this, if Jesus ever came to this church, this place would just go... Yes or no? You know what changed these guys? They saw Jesus alive for 40 days with infallible proofs. Man, you read the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't have time to turn, but would you just trust me here? The Bible says that Jesus was seen by Cephas and he was seen by all these different people. The Bible says he was seen by 500 brethren at one time. It goes down through one thing after another. Last week we left out in the Gospel of Mark. You say, Pastor, what are some infallible proofs that Jesus Christ is alive? How about last Sunday? Who moved the stone? Who moved the stone, folks? It wasn't moved for Jesus to get out. It was moved so that they could get in. Jesus Christ was alive. The stone was moved. They walked in there. First thing they saw was that shelf with those grave clothes and all like a body and nobody's there. And by the way, if that don't get your attention, you got two angels sitting on either end. Amen. And the Bible says the old, the gals, they take off running. Mary Magdalene stays behind and she sees some dude walking around and she thought it was the gardener. And she reaches out and grabs him, and Jesus says, don't touch me, don't clutch me. I've got to go show myself to the Father. And when he calls her name, she realizes, man, that's Jesus Christ. He's alive. 
Later that afternoon, Jesus meets up with a couple of dudes walking down this road to a place called Emmaus. And he begins to explain to them all the places in the Bible that, his, that Jesus has seen. And they, they got spiritual heartburn. And about the time they recognized who Jesus was, he vanished out of their sight. Later that night, Thomas wasn't there, but the other guys were. And Jesus comes through the wall. He doesn't use the door. He comes through the wall. He appears inside that room. And there he speaks to the disciples. And when Thomas comes back, he says, I ain't going to believe until I put my finger in his side. The next Sunday, Jesus comes back. He says, there you go, big boy. You want to do it, do it. Put your finger right there. How many remember that? You say, Pastor, what are you saying? Infallible proofs. Paul says he was seen by 500 brethren at one time. And he says, oh, by the way, most of them are still living. Go ask them. Amen. Now, after 40 days of Jesus appearing and appearing and appearing, man, these folks had an unshakable faith in a living Lord. They knew that Jesus Christ was alive. There was proof. Let me ask you a question. Do you have that proof deep down in your heart? Man, folks, I've been all over the orange. I've seen, I've seen the pinky finger of Buddha. They chopped that dude up and stuck him all over places in the orange. And you got a little pinky finger. You can go by and look at Buddha's pinky finger. By the way, there's no place in Judah that you can go and see any piece of Jesus. Because I have a risen Savior. He's alive. With infallible proofs. Buddha is dead and in the grave. Confucius is dead and in the grave. Muhammad is dead and in the grave. But our Jesus is alive. And they believed it. Yeah. They had an unshakable faith in a living Lord. And it changed them. Well, let's read a little further. The Bible says they, he shows himself for 40 days with infallible proofs in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait. How many of you like waiting? My wife, and I'm just going to say it because you need to hear it. My wife had a bone scan. We're waiting for results. She had breast cancer 11 years ago. There's a chance that maybe it's come back. And she had it done last Friday. And here we wait. I'm not into waiting. I'd like to go slap me a couple of texts and a couple of doctors right on the face. Give him the word of the Lord. Send him his results. The Bible says, I want you to go and I want you to wait. Notice that. He says, being assembled, he said, wait for the promise of the Father. You say, Pastor, what's the promise of the Father? Jesus broke that news to him in, in the upper room. Remember when Jesus had that dinner with his guys the last time? He says, hey, fellas, I'm leaving, but I'll send into you the Holy Spirit. I'll send the promise of the Father. Now, they're waiting. Jesus says, I have to go so that I can send him to you. And he says, by the way, when he gets there, now you remember this? You won't have to worry about what to say because he'll bring to your remembrance everything you're supposed to say. You won't have to worry about what you're going to do because he'll tell you what to do when you got to do it. 
You say, Pastor, what's the big deal about that? I don't think you realize the Holy Spirit. Let me get, let me just do it this way. Jesus could only be one place at one time. Now he could do some incredible things, but if he was in Jerusalem, he's in Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at the same time. And there's a whole bunch of Christians out there. Would you agree with that? I'd, I'd love to see Jesus and I'd love to talk to Jesus and I'd love that Jesus encourage me and do all those kinds of things. But I got the Holy Spirit in my heart everywhere I go. He says, wait for the promise of the Father. He's going to come. I've got to go first, but I'm going to send him to you and he'll live in you and be within you. Amen. Wow. You see, the thing that's really cool about this verse is basically it says... Man, we're totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. This church endeavor, this, this gospelizing of the word, world, it doesn't come by me or my energy or my effort. The bottom line is it's the power of the Holy Spirit that does that. Amen. It's not what I can do. It's what God can do through me. Amen. You catch that? So these guys had an unmistakable dependence upon the Holy Ghost. Literally, when you read verse 5 here, it says, you're going to be baptized into the Holy Ghost. Now, stay with me. Look up here just for a second. I'm, I'm going to do some heavy-duty teaching. When you talk about the baptism of the Spirit, now, will you listen to me? Will you let me help you with this? Because there's a lot of confusion right here at this point. That passage is said about seven times in the New Testament. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming. Now, let me help you with something. If you read it, four out of those times, it was John the Baptist that said it. Now, John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. How many of you know that? Okay. And John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit on four separate occasions. One time, Jesus quotes something that John the Baptist says about the Holy Spirit. It's not that Jesus was telling us anything new. He was quoting, John said this about the Holy Ghost. So five of the times, are you listening to me? Five of the times are prophetic the Holy Ghost is coming. The promise of the Father. He's going to come. And you're going to be baptized into him literally. And if you get into Acts chapter 11, it's a historical reference. Acts chapter 11 basically talks about pointing back to Pentecost, saying that's when the Holy Spirit came. Let me show you the only place in the Bible where it's doctrinal. All right. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now look over there just for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me see if I can find it real quick here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All right, you got it? You ready? The Bible basically says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13, it says, For by one spirit, now I'm in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You got it? For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Notice that. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and been made to drink of the Spirit. Now look up here just for a second. There are some people that make the baptism of the Spirit something spooky. I had a guy one time, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Yeah. This next question was, so when did you speak in tongues? I haven't. Well, then you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Let me help you with something. 
When I got saved, I had a wet baptism a few weeks after I got saved. It's right up there. You see it? And I got dunked. But when I was saved, the moment I trusted God as my Savior, I was baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Are you listening to me? You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that there is a church out there that all of us, whether Greek or Hebrew, whether bond or free, whether slave or slave owner, bottom line is when you get saved, you're identified with the body of Christ. Now, let me be honest with you. I don't pray for something that's already happened. Have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? No. I don't have to. It happened immediately. I didn't even have I didn't even know it happened to me for years. Amen. I got saved when I was six years old. You think I knew about the baptism of the Holy Spirit at age six? Seriously? Jesus is saying, hey, the Holy Ghost is going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to baptize you, all of you, into the body of Christ. By the way, if you're saved and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you too have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you the correct question. It's not whether or not, Phil, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Yes, I have been. I got baptized the moment I got saved. Not wet baptism. It was a dry one. It was not one that I basically knew about. It's something theologically that happened to me that identifies me now with the body of Christ. The real question is this, Phil, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And my answer, honestly, is sometimes. Or once in a while. Or if you talk to my wife, no. <laughs> Not being ugly. You say, Pastor, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It has nothing to, the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine where is an excess, but be ye what? Filled with the Spirit. The Bible never commands us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we're baptized into, literally, into the body of Christ. I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. However, being filled is an issue of control. Who's controlling me? Okay, let's look in the mirror now. Let's not look at the pastor. Who's controlling you? We're going to find out as you drive away from church today. When you get on I-65 and that trucker cuts you off, I'm going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Yeah. You say, what happens when you get filled with the Holy Spirit? You begin to let him work through you. I have the Holy Spirit's identification. I've been baptized into the body of Christ. But the Bible says be filled with his spirit. Let him control you. Amen. That controls what I look at, what I hear, what I say, what I think. How many are getting that now? That's a little different question, isn't it? So these guys were totally dependent upon the Holy Ghost. Now, I got to quickly go on. Let me show you what else the next one is. Look at Acts chapter 1 again. Acts chapter 1. They notice, and according to your scriptures, and I got my, I can't get my Bible to turn there. Sorry about that. Won't be the first time I've lost the passage. All right, let's read verse number six, verse five. Be baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days since. When ye therefore come together, ye ask of him, saying, Lord, what will at this time 
restore the kingdom of God. And he said unto them, it's not for you to know uh, the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But, here's the thing, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses both unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Underline the word in your Bible there, witnesses. You know what the word witness means? You know what the Greek word witness means? Martyr. You will be martyrs for me. Now, we use our English term witness. What is a witness? Somebody that says something they heard or something they saw, right? Scripture says these guys are going to be witnesses. You're going to be given power by the Holy Ghost to be witnesses where you live in Judea and Samaria, that's the next region over, and to the uttermost parts of the, of the world. Now, stay with me just for a second. Let me help you some. What's the first word in verse 8? <laughs> you ever hear about Gary Coleman, one of my preacher friends? He was, he was preaching a sermon one time, on, and he was talking about excuses in his church. And he says, there's some of you out there that used to work in the choir, sing in the choir, but something came up. And he said, you used to work in the nursery, but now you won't do that no more. You used to teach a Sunday school, but, and he went through that whole, he said, bless God, I've seen every but in this church. <laughs> now, how do you walk that back? <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? Now, why would the verse start off with a big, that sounds horrible too, doesn't it? <laughs> why would it start with a but? Why a conjunction? Let me teach you English. Why does it start with that conjunction but? Well, it points back to something they were saying. You say, Pastor, what were the disciples concerned about? Look back up to verse number, uh, verse number six. He says, uh, they're going to ask him, said, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Hey, by the way, Jesus had taught them that they were going to sit on his right side and his left side. Remember, the Zebedee mom came to him and said, hey, Jesus, I don't know about it. Would you let my boy sit one side or the other side? Remember that? In front of the other 12, and the other 12 got a little miffed. I remember, you remember that in the Bible, yes or no? Yeah, they got all upset. Jesus said verses like this. He said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. He taught about the kingdom of God his whole time. And their question is, Lord, when are you going to set up the kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't know that. Neither will you ever know that. God knows that. You know, the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, the secret things belong unto God. You say, Pastor, when is Jesus coming back? I have no idea. It may be before this sermon's done and all God's people said. Some of you say, I don't think that's going to happen. We're going to have to sit here another 30 minutes for sure. <laughs> I'm already give out on this thing in sermon. Hey, bottom line is they were worried about the kingdom of God. Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom? By the way, if Jesus had set it up right now, guess what? We wouldn't be here. We'd have never got saved. The whole missionary endeavor, the church at Jerusalem getting started, the church at Antioch, all the things that were going on in the book of Acts, all of that stuff. Would, Lord, we want to skip over a whole bunch of history. When are you going to set up the thousand-year reign of Christ? Jesus says, fellas, but 
get your mind off the kingdom. Get your mind off your what size crown you wear. What size throne do you get to sit in? Let me tell you what you're going to be. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to be martyrs. By the way, I double dog dare you to go study how the disciples died. Peter was crucified on a cross like an X upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die the way my Lord died. John, the beloved, died of old age, but it wasn't before he went to Patmos and it wasn't before they, listen to this, boiled him in oil. Jesus said, fellas, you're going to be witnesses for me. Get your mind off the kingdom. That's not where we're going. That, that's going to take place when God gets good and ready to do that. Bottom line is right now. Hey, bottom line is right now. Are you listening to me? You're going to have to be martyred. You're going to have to witness for me. Not here just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria, the most parts of the world. Wow. And by the way, it turned a bunch of wimps into world changers. I got one last conviction. Let me show it to you. They had not just only an unequivocal mission to witness about Jesus Christ. Let's, let's look at the last one. They had an unquenchable hope in, an, in a coming king. Look at verse number, look at nine. You got it? And this is it. This is it. All right. For those of you saying, I'm tired of listening to you. I'm getting hungry too. So we're going to close her down. All right. Look at verse nine. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. Hey, I don't have the time to show you all the promises in the Bible where the Bible said that Jesus would be ascending into heaven. You say, Pastor, what's the big deal about the ascension? Let me ask you a question. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You say, what's the big deal about that? Every time Satan accuses me, Jesus gets up and he pleads my case. And if he hadn't gone back to heaven like he said he would, I wouldn't have an advocate. Amen. The Bible says I have a high priest that's touched with the feelings of my infirmities. And when I cry out to God, like I've been doing this week, God, please help me. Please help my wife. God listens, and he says, hey, I'm touched by that. I know what it's like, what you're going through. By the way, how many of you like having a high priest that's touched with the feelings of your infirmities? Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't scratch his beard and says, well, I can't imagine what that's like. Are you listening to me? Did you know the Bible says that Jesus Christ promised that he would pray for us? And, and when you talk about prayer, that we have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that when my prayers get shot up to heaven, Jesus kind of repackages them and he says, all right, Lord, this is what he really wants. Will you, will you do that? And Jesus begins to pray for me. How many want to bet that Jesus' prayers get answered every time? Amen. Hey, I'm glad you went back to heaven. How about you? Come on now, are you glad he went back to heaven? All right, look what it says. I got to quick get done. It says, and while they looked up steadfastly, he went up, two men stood by him, and wide up there, he said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you, in like manner, as you've seen him go into heaven, he's going to come back. And by the way, the next verse says it's going to be the Mount of Olives. That's where he went up from, the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah chapter 12, about verse number 2, says that when Jesus comes back, not for the church, 
But at the end of the tribulation time, he's going to come back in clouds. He's going to stand on top of that Mount of Olives and it's going to split open. And the Bible says all of Satan's cohorts, the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, have gathered the armies of the world. And that valley opens up and Jesus wins a victory called Armageddon. Right from that same mountain he was taken from. Come on, I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. Is that semi-cool, yes or no? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe Jesus Christ is coming back? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit can empower us and make us witnesses for Christ? Do you believe that Jesus began a work that we're supposed to finish? Yeah, we can go. We can have these same convictions. The same thing that motivated these guys to change the world. We could change our world. If we believed it. I am told, I've not seen this with my own eyes, but there's a government building, an archives building in Washington. I went inside it and saw the Constitution, but I didn't notice the little sign. And it has an inscription on the building that reads like this. What is past is prologue. A group of tourists were touring the building one day, and as they left, they looked up and they saw the inscription, and one of the people in the group asked one of the janitors who was cleaning out in front of the building, he said, what does that mean? The janitor looked up and he said, I don't know, but here's what I think it means. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> By the way, you know if we believe what these guys believed, you ain't seen nothing yet. Amen. You ever stop and think of the church started off with Jesus? And then it had 11, not 12. And then if you read a little further, they had 120 praying. Come on, stay with me. And then the Bible said there were 3,000 that got saved on the day of Pentecost. And you read a little further on, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands. And finally, the Bible says, and the disciples multitude greatly. Some people say that Constantine saw a burning cross and in 312 A.D., he converted to Christianity. Do you know that they've done studies and they found that probably 60% of the Roman Empire in 300 years had gone from one, Jesus Christ, to a probably 30 million? See, Pastor, how did they do that? They had conviction. What about your conviction? I said, some of us don't believe in a risen Lord. We'd be freaked out. I honestly believe that. I think if we really truly believe that Jesus was alive, it'd make a difference in our life. Amen. Come on, this, this is a mud flap on my head. Amen. That's true. That's true. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what we're learning from the book of Acts. What a great book it is. God, help us to realize we could change the world if we just had the same convictions that those original 11 disciples had. God, I pray that today we would be people that believe these deep-seated truths from your word. God, help us to realize that you are alive and that you have given us a dependence upon the Holy Spirit and that we can be a witness and Lord we have a hope Jesus is coming back 
God, speak to us. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. How many be honest enough this morning to say, Pastor, you know when you preach about stuff like that, you know, I'm, I'm a little shaky on some of that. I need to develop that same conviction that these disciples had. Maybe, maybe today you need to realize that your dependence is on the Holy Ghost. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not you living the Christian life. It's God's power unleashed in your life. Some of you